I'm sorry this happened to the society. It hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang-up. Where this monster enter my brain, I will never know. But it here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help, that you have killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. Hi, curious listener, Michelle O'Dell here, and this is Cornfed Killer. The quote that you listened to at the beginning of the episode came from a letter that a man named Dennis Rader had written to the police about a killing of a family in Wichita, Kansas in 1974. That man was Dennis Rader. You may know him as BTK a nickname that he had given himself. We'll talk more about that later. Let's start at the beginning. The beginning of his killing spree, that is. On a seemingly normal Tuesday morning in January 1974, 11-year-old Josie, Josephine, Otero, pulled on a t-shirt and made her way to the kitchen, where she found her mother in her housecoat setting out cereal, milk, and bowls for Josie and her eight-year-old brother Joey for breakfast before their father Joseph, who was at the table eating fruit, drove them to school. He had already driven Josie's older siblings, 15-year-old Charlie, 14-year-old Danny, and 13-year-old Carmen, to their school. Following their usual routine, the family went about their morning not knowing that their killer was outside their house that very moment, watching and waiting. Dennis Rader had crept up to the back door of the family's home and noticed, much to his dismay, that Joseph was home. He had not anticipated that. He had expected only the mother and the kids to be home. They would be easy to control, to restrain, but not Joseph. He might put up a fight, and he might even get the better of him. He was not supposed to be home. Dennis had timed his arrival so that Joseph would not be home. He had followed Julie several times after seeing her and Josie in town weeks earlier. He knew the family's morning routine. Joseph left for work around eight. Julie drove Josie and Joey to school around 8.45 a.m. So Dennis arrived that morning at the Otero's home at 8.20. To avoid this situation, you see, it was Josie that he wanted. He knew that Josie would be home at 8.20. He also knew the little brother would be there, but he didn't think that the boy would be a problem. He would just kill him. No big deal. Ugh, a hitch in his plans. Why was Joseph here? What Dennis Rader didn't know was that Joseph had been in a car accident a few days prior and had broken some ribs, preventing him from working for a while. That's why he was home. 
Dennis considered whether or not he should bail. He almost did when he saw paw prints in the snow. It was January in Wichita, how, after all. A dog? When did they get a dog? Things were not going according to plan. Dennis was sure that he had thought of everything. He had parked the car, his car several blocks away in a grocery, grocery store parking lot and walked to the Otero's house so no one would see his car there. He had filled the pockets of his parka with everything he would need. Rope, a cord from an old Venetian blind, gags, white adhesive tape, a knife, plastic bags, and a gun. That was it. That was it. I'll threaten the man with a gun. That should work. As for the dog, he whistled and no dog. He should be fine, he thought. He had to go through with this. He wanted Josephine. He thought of her long, dark hair and glasses, and he knew that she was perfect for SBT. SBT was an abbreviation that Dennis used for what he called Sparky Big Time. He had nicknamed his penis Sparky, so I'm sure you can imagine what Sparky Big Time means. This guy's just pathetic, you know what? <laughs> I mean, really. Dennis Rader spent a lot of time talking and thinking about Sparky Big Time and watching pornography. He knew that he wanted to be a killer, so he trained himself to be one. He learned to tie nooses and lots of different knots. He started off by hanging cats and dogs in barns as a teenager, and during his time in the Air Force, he peered through blinds to watch women undress. He broke into homes and stole women's underwear. Eventually, he graduated to stalking women as they shopped alone in grocery stores. His plan was to hide in the backseat of their cars, kidnap them, and kill them. But he had always chickened out. Not this time. This time, he would follow through. He checked the back door. Locked. He pulled out his hunting knife and severed the telephone line. Whilst figuring out his next move, he heard the back door open. He pulled out the gun, and in front of him, at the back door, was a little boy and a dog. The dog started barking. Pointing the gun, Dennis hustled the boy into the house, into the kitchen, where he met Joseph Otaro. The dog continued to bark. He pointed the gun at Joseph and informed him that this was a stick-up. Little Josie, who was also in the kitchen, started to cry. He tried to calm the situation by telling them not to be alarmed. He lied to them, telling them that he wasn't going to kill them. He killed them all. After the murders, he took the Otero's car, a station wagon, and drove it to the grocery store parking lot, parked it, and returned it to his own vehicle and returned to his own vehicle. He did remember to move the driver's seat of the Ter Otero's car way up, so that it looked like someone shorter than his 5'11 had been driving. He suddenly realized that he had left his knife at the Otero's house. 
and he actually went back to their home, went inside, and retrieved the knife. Then he went home to his wife, beaming with happiness at what he had just done. Around 3.30 that afternoon, Carmen and Danny Otero, Otero sorry, arrived home, having walked from their school, Robinson Junior High. They noticed that the family dog, Lucky, was outside. That struck them as odd because their parents never left him outside. He barked at strangers, and they didn't want him to scare somebody. Furthermore, the garage door was open, but the station wagon was gone. Why would their parents leave the door open if they had gone somewhere? Carmen and Danny checked the back door. It was locked. They went around to the front. They got the door open and noticed right away that their mother's purse was purse was lying on the living room floor with its contents dumped out. They saw Josie's little white purse in the kitchen, along with their dad's wallet and its contents littering the stovetop. Breakfast items, along with potted meat and bread that Carmen and Danny knew were meant to use, were usually used by their mother to make lunches, was also sitting out. Stomachs churning, the siblings ran for their parents' bedroom, where they were greeted by a gruesome sight. Their mother and father's hands were tied behind their backs. Their bodies were stiff and cold. They had ropes around their necks. Carmen tried to cut the rope from her mother's neck with a pair of toenail clippers, hoping that she wasn't dead, hoping that she could somehow revive her. She could not. Carmen and Danny started screaming and crying. At this moment, their big brother, Charlie, was walking up to the house. Charlie noticed Lucky outside and the open garage door. He smiled to himself, thinking that his mom had just forgotten to close it. He was planning on teasing her about it. Until he walked inside the front door and heard his siblings screaming. He followed the screaming to his parents' bedroom, and what he saw sent him racing into the kitchen to grab a knife. He thought someone might still be in the house. He yelled, Whoever is in this house, you're dead. No one answered. He picked up a yardstick and banged it, hitting the tables and the walls until it shattered. He picked up the phone, intending to call 911, but of course it was dead. Charlie ran to the neighbor's house, banged on the door, and quickly relayed what was wrong at his house. The neighbors called 911. Charlie ran back into the house to wait with his little brother and sister. They waited outside. Officers Robert Beulah and Jim Lindenberg, Lindenberg pardon me, arrived at Otero's home and were greeted by a frantic Charlie. He told them who he was and what they would find inside the house, and he begged them to somehow prevent his little sister Josie and his little brother Joey from coming home. You see, he, Carmen, and Danny did not know that their little siblings had never made it to school. They assumed that they had, and hadn't even looked, hadn't even thought to look for them in the house. I imagine it was a good thing that they did not look. What they would have seen would have further traumatized them. The officers told Charlie to stay outside with Carmen and Danny. Beulah and Lindeberg 
entered the home. They noticed the purse and the wallet, the contents strewn about. They made their way to the master bedroom. They saw Joseph Otero, Otero, I'm so sorry, tied up on the floor, and Julie Otero lie, lay on the bed. She was bound, hands behind her back, just like her husband. Her naked legs were hanging over the edge of the bed, and her face was caked in dry blood. There was a rope around her neck, the one that Carmen had tried to cut with the toenail clippers. Bulo radioed dispatchers, telling them that there were two possible homicides at the residence. The officers walked out of the house to Charlie, Carmen, and Danny. Charlie, again, was begging them to not let Joey and Josie come home and see this. They also told the officers that their parents' brown 1966 Oldsmill Vista Cruiser was missing. A short time later, more officers arrived on the scene. The officers questioned the children, asking them if they thought that their father could have done this. Maybe a suicide-murder-type situation. They were absolutely horrified by this question. Charlie repeated that they needed to stop Josie and Josie from coming home. The officers told the children to move away from the house. An officer named Detective Ray Floyd pulled 15-year-old Charlie aside, a little away from his siblings, and informed him that the officers had found young Josie and Joey in the house. They were dead. Charlie, Carmen, and Danny had lost their entire family. Their world would never, never be the same. An emergency dispatcher placed a call to Lieutenant Colonel Jack Bruce, the supervising commander of vice and homicide detectives in Wichita. He made assignments, coordinated shifts, sent lab experts, basically mobilized the entire department. Wichita had never seen a horror such as this. Sergeant Joe Thomas arrived on the scene just minutes after the call had reached Lieutenant Colonel Jack Bruce. He secured the scene, trying to ensure that no one trampled on evidence. He, like all of the other officers, were forever affected by what they saw in the house and would be forevermore. I, I don't know why I just double <laughs> said forever there, but you get my drift. Uh, little Josie Otero was found in the basement, nearly naked and hanging, a crude noose around her neck from a sewer pipe. She had a gag in her mouth, but her tongue was sticking out past the gag, as if maybe she was trying to get it off. Like her parents, her wrists and ankles had been tied. The killer had used a variety of knots, cord, and rope, and even tape to bind them. In fact, it was discovered that the Otero's bodies had so many ligature marks on their throats that it indicated to the police that the killer had not simply strangled them all until dead, but drew it out, allowing them air and then strangling them some more. Detectives also noticed that Julie, I'm sorry, Josie, 11-year-old Josie, had dried blood on her bare thigh and that there were spots of the same fluid on the floor near the body. The officers assumed that it was ejaculate. It looked as if the killer had masturbated on her, 
most likely while watching her die. Whew. This one's heavy, guys. You know, I should have really hit the trigger warning at the beginning. This is heavy. This one's hard. So, continuing on, Major Bill Cornwell found Joey Otero. Otero. I don't know why I keep wanting to say Otero. Otero in his room. His wrists were tied. Two t-shirts had been placed over his head and then a plastic bag over them. All of that had been secured with a clothesline and had been pulled tight around the boy's neck. Can you even imagine? This little baby. Mm. Shockingly, however, this was not the most disturbing thing that Major Cornwall saw in little Joey Otero's room. He saw chair marks on the carpet next to Joey's bed. They looked new. He realized that the killer had pulled up a chair and watched young Joey suffocate to death. After the bodies were taken away, the DA for Sedgwick County, the county where the Oteros lived, followed the detectives through the house, listening as they described the horrors that they found. Lieutenant Colonel Bruce also went in, having to walk past reporters and photographers. Word had spread like fire. They had taken pictures of the remaining Otero children being led away from the house. They had even filmed the bodies being taken out of the house. Lieutenant Colonel Bruce knew that the city would be panicked by morning. Bruce told his detectives to get some rest and arrive fresh in the morning. Not one of them listened. Detectives Caldwell and Drawatsky stayed the night in the Otero home. Otero home, just in case the murderer came back. Photographers and looky-loos shuffled around the outside of the house all night. Back at the office, Cornwell was dealing with witness statements. Neighbors had offered conflicting reports. One said that he saw a white skinny guy in a dark coat around 8.45 a.m. outside the Otero home. Another neighbor said he saw a short man with bushy black hair, maybe Middle Eastern, but this description could also apply to Joseph Otero, who was only five foot four. As a matter of fact, in the sketch artist's drawing, the man resembled Joseph Otero, only with a thinner mustache. So the witness statements and the sketch really didn't do much to help them, at least not yet. Around 10.30 the next morning, Otero's station wagon was found in that parking lot at the Dillon's Grocery, as Dennis Rader had planned, detectives speculated that maybe the killer was a short guy, given the fact that the driver's seat was pulled so far up. Cornwell stayed in his office all night that night, fielding calls, pitching ideas, looking into evidence, brainstorming with other detectives, who, along with Cornwall, did not go home for three straight days. They had food brought in and took little catnaps at their desks while they investigated the Otero, Otero case. For 10 days, 75 officers worked 18-hour shifts. This case consumed them. 
the lab reports confirmed that the fluid found on and near Josie was indeed sperm. They followed leads that led nowhere. Desperate, they even brought in a psychic. They learned nothing from him. To make matters worse, someone had lost most of the autopsy photos and several crime photos. Chief Hannon, understandably, hit the roof. There was, as you can imagine, immense pressure to the, on the department to find the killer. Chief Hannon held a press conference twice a day, in which he told the public details about the progress of the case and speculated about suspects and motives. He also appealed to the public for information. The Wichita Eagle and the Beacon newspapers covered every development, every setback, everything. The public was frightened, and rightly so. A few days later, the Otero's bodies were flown to their homeland of Puerto Rico and buried. Carmen, Danny, and Charlie were placed in a home with a family in Albuquerque, pardon me, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Charlie did not farewell after the murders. He became angered. He drank and did drugs. He became estranged from his siblings. He even served time in prison, and he gave up believing in God. He wished he could kill whomever had wiped out his family. You know, this is so heartbreaking. You can only imagine. I mean, actually, I don't even know if you can. It's almost impossible to imagine these three kids going on with their lives after finding their parents brutally murdered and learning that their two baby siblings were also brutally murdered and that they were the only survivors. They were orphaned, orphaned overnight in the blink of an eye. And, you know, I don't know the details of the family that took them in in New Mexico, I'm hoping that they treated them well. We don't know that information. But, you know, to go from Kansas to New Mexico, a whole new state, a whole new situation, whole new family, uh, you know, never to see your parents or your siblings again. It, it is, it's unfathomable what they went through. It does not surprise me at all that Charlie became consumed with anger that he, you know, served time in prison. It does not surprise me at all. It's very, very tragic, very sad. And I hope that things went better for him later on. I don't know that information. And, um, you know, it's just unbelievable. You know, needless to, needless to say, None of the three surviving Oteros ever came back to Kansas. I definitely wouldn't. Okay, so detectives, having quickly ruled out the idea that the killer was someone related to the Oteros, moved on to the idea that there was a possible drug connection. Now, they came upon this idea because they knew that Joseph Otero had access to a private, to private planes, he was an airplane mechanic and a flying instructor at the time. And having served in the Air Force, 
he had been to Latin America, where, you know, at the time, in the 70s, there was a huge, you know, drug issue, a drug problem. I'm not sure the status now. I don't really know anything about that world. But detectives started thinking maybe there was some sort of drug deal gone wrong. They were kind of grasping at, star at straws here because there was not even an aspirin found in the house, let alone any kind of illegal drugs or prescription drugs or anything like that. But, you know, it was an idea. Another idea that the police explored was that maybe Julie had a boyfriend on the side, maybe someone at work, maybe someone jealous enough to kill. Because, as it would turn out, a former supervisor of hers had been shot just days before the murders. So they're wondering, were these two things connected? If not a jealous boyfriend, maybe there was someone who had a beef against people who worked at Coleman, where she worked? It was an idea that they felt they had to explore. Seemed kind of far-fetched, but it was something they had to explore. Lastly, they thought maybe the killer was a thief who had murdered the Ateros because they had seen him. They did find those purses and wallet, you know, with contents strewn about. Maybe there had been money in there that they had taken. They did notice other places in the house where things were kind of ransacked. So maybe robbery was a motive, and maybe that's why they were murdered. Mm, it doesn't quite fit that idea, though, because why not just kill them all quickly if you're just killing them to cover your tracks, basically? These people were tortured, and we'll learn more about that later and see what the police do with these ideas and what they learn from that. So we are going to stop there, curious listener. This is going to be a two-part, two maybe even three-part series because there is just so much to unpack with BTK, a.k.a. Dennis Rader. This was his first murder, his first, you know, attempt at at murder he you know like we said he had this was his uh mea culpa basically although it didn't go quite as he had planned he had accomplished murder and that's what he wanted he's a real sick fuck and <laughs> i'm sure you figured that out by now and we're going to explore that and talk about the several other murders that he commits during several, several years. We'll talk about how he eventually gets caught and we'll unpack the whole shebang. So, you know, kind of gear up for at least a part two, if not three. By the end of part two, I'll let you know where we're at, of course. But that's where we're going to be for the next couple episodes, at least, in the BTK headspace. So it's going to be rough, um, but it's going to be fascinating. So until next time, curious listener, stay safe.